0: right, here we are on episode 17 of Exponential Growth. Today we have Robert Terenzi. We're going to be talking about personal and business growth as always. And Robert is joining us with Becca Coffee. And he and I, we got a chance to meet the Louisiana Startup Prize. And funny enough, of course, he lives in Nicaragua. So we briefly did some hola, como estas, a little bit of Spanish right there. (laughs) But a really awesome entrepreneur. He's one of the top five finalists of the Louisiana Startup Prize. And Robert, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Gabriel. This is uh, really exciting. Happy to be here.
0: Great. Well, let's go ahead and and tell the audience a little bit of your background. I know it's quite interesting. I think it's the third or maybe the fourth person that we have in the show that they actually come from a law background. So I see you're an associate, used to be an associate attorney. Couple years ago, and then in Palo Alto, and then how do you ended up being an entrepreneur from you know that background?
1: Yeah, so the the journey has been a long one. I initially came down to Nicaragua about 11, 12 years ago, right after undergrad, and it was just supposed to be a three month internship, but ended up kind of doing some work with coffee farmers, falling in love with not only the country but just the supply chain of coffee too, and coffee farmers and the smell of coffee and making coffee, but you know, and so I had a, I had a business down there that was basically Vega Coffee 1.0, where we were working with coffee farmers to enable them to roast their own coffee in country. Although at that point we were just doing it kind of over over like an open fire walk kind of thing, very rustic, very kind of homemade, old school. Um, and then I was bringing it to restaurants and bars in, in Nicaragua. Nicaragua had kind of at that point just started to become a little bit of a tourist mecca. You know, kind of take some of that tourism from from Costa Rica, and so. The, the coffee was, was instant. It was that presto kind of Nespresso stuff that was just barely palatable, just terrible, terrible coffee. And so this coffee was a huge step up. And so we started selling it to hotels and restaurants. Farmers went from making 60, 75 cents a pound to, to three or $4 a pound. And it was just an immediate kind of, it was a light bulb moment for me. You know, it was, it was kind of like, well, farmers are, are able to do this. What they don't have is access to markets. And so I did that for about two and a half years and then, you know, decided that I wanted to kind of pursue a more formal education in, in trade and in development. And so I went to law school in New York and, and, and studied uh, international trade, international law, and got a master's in international development at the same time. And, and then, like you said, I went out to San Francisco, Bay Area, and practiced kind of startup law. So I was with Wilson Sonsini, which is a big Silicon Valley firm that does a lot of a lot of like tech deals. So we were, we were Twitter's attorneys and, and represented a ton of startups. And so that really kind of infused. And so, you know, being around that kind of energy and that entrepreneurial spirit where people were just kind of, were just quitting their jobs and, and doing crazy things, you know, kind of, kind of infected me. I got, I got the startup bug again. And so about three years ago, my wife and I and my best friend, Will DeLuca, who's another, the third co-founder along with my wife, Nushin Katabi, uh, we all kind of quit our jobs. Nushin and I moved to Nicaragua to start Vega Coffee. Will is based in New York and does kind of all of our back end tech
0: stuff. And yes, and yeah, so now, now we've been out about almost three years. Yeah, before we jump into the, uh, the story itself about Vega Coffee, I want to just continue to expand more on, on your journey. And so at that time, you, you were doing your, you know, getting your education and, and formalizing your, yep. your schooling, but Even though you knew about the entrepreneurial world, why do you decide? Okay, I wanna continue, you know, going back to school, especially when, since like you know, the Silicon Valley culture and a lot of these entrepreneurs, like, well, you did not need school, you did not need college or stuff. So, what was your what was your thought back there when you decided to continue to formalize your education?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I I grew up on the on, on kind of the East Coast, you know, Boston, Connecticut, New York, and came from kind of a more conservative upbringing, and so I think that I was. I was a little bit like I didn't have the confidence to to kind of just fully commit to to my dream before I went to law school and before kind of getting exposed to to Silicon Valley and to the, the rapid growth of, of of startups out there and so I felt like there was a, a safety or a or, or or some kind of like thing I should be doing which was law school and so 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 that that's kind of what drew me back you know it was it wasn't kind of it wasn't a, a real intense passion of mine to study law but i felt like i should be doing it and so i went to do it and i and as an attorney you know i I learned a ton i it's it was an incredibly valuable experience but i wasn't i wasn't happy i wasn't passionate about what i was doing and 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 that that is really what what a main catalyst was for me to kind of jump ship and and start vegas that vegas giving me kind of an opportunity to like live my purpose in a sense you know not not to get kind of corny but like pursuing something that is bigger than myself and that is that has the potential to really radically transform economies like is, is really what drives me and what gets me going every day. And I, I didn't, I didn't find that passion in, in law.
0: Totally agree hundred percent. And one thing I know, of course, we're going to be talking about the, the social aspect of the business and, and the social entrepreneurship uh, yeah. overall, but I want to talk some uh, about something that I haven't really got a chance to do so much here, but since you, you had the chance to first visit Nicaragua but then you move down there, right? How long have you been? So you go back and forth or you, are you based in Nicaragua or? Yeah. So presently, I'm,
1: I'm, I am based full time in Nicaragua. I've uh, been down here for about pretty close to three years. You know, we, we do a decent amount of traveling for conferences, competitions, investor meetings, stuff like that. But yeah, our, our home is, is in Esteli, Nicaragua. Yeah.
0: So what I wanted to to touch base, is, I, I, um, I mean, the cultural aspect and being in, in in California, you say Boston, you mentioned okay, Nicaragua. So my team is in Venezuela. Some of my team is in Venezuela. The other part is in the Philippines, here in the yep. States. And I grew up in Venezuela. So I got this diverse and the uh, mix of... And then when we went to, to Shreveport, that was a completely different culture than here it's in Baton right. Rouge or New Orleans that is just an hour away from me that I'm, I'm next year I'm moving down there. Oh, so you, yeah, do you, do you have any thoughts about what uh, that trip to Nicaragua, may you like in your entrepreneurial journey, what happened?
1: Sure, yeah. So, you know, there, there's not too many not cliched ways of of putting it, but you know, it was it, the first time I came down. I I had basically been living on the East Coast my whole life. I studied abroad in Spain, but had never really lived in a developing country. And you know, I lived with a family my first two years down there, who was you know. Barely making ends meet, you know, three three kids and surviving on two dollars a day, kind of thing, like you know, below the poverty line. And that that kind of that that experience was just was was completely transformative. And I, I don't say that only in a, in, a, in a sense that you know you get exposed to a different demographic, and you, you know, all of a sudden you appreciate everything you're doing. It's also from an entrepreneur's perspective, you, you see a lot of opportunity there because. Because it's it is so underdeveloped and because there, there's there's so much potential. You know, Nicaragua has so many natural resources and so much kind of going on, and the infrastructure is getting better by the day. But a lot of people still think about it as you know a war-torn country from the 80s or a socialist country where any day, you know, Ortega can take your property. And that, that's just not how trade gets done. That's not how economies operate now. And so living in those countries living in Nicaragua or in Central America or Latin America in general, like, I think that you, you can see the opportunity if you come from or have experience working in the U.S. or in Europe. So, yeah, I mean, that, the, my first trip to Nicaragua literally was only supposed to last about uh, eight weeks, ten weeks, and, and I, I didn't leave for, for basically two years. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, phenomenal. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the, the five M's that we usually cover the show. Let's start with the business model. I know it's a subscription base, but... If you can tell us why you, you guys decided to follow that business model and how's that shaping the direction and the strategy of, of the company?
1: Yeah, sure. So a lot of people when they hear about what we're doing ask, you know, why isn't somebody else doing this? And the the reason is because that our business model and our 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 operational kind of capacity would not have been possible even five years ago. The the rise of subscription services is has been really important to what we're doing. So for people who don't know, you know, we're, we're a subscription coffee service that sends roasted coffee to your door or to your office every two or four weeks. And the, the reason that that's important for us on a logistics side is that we're able to aggregate coffee into shipments so that we can reduce our shipping costs. We're not sending, you know, one pound at a time, but rather we're sending 500, a thousand pounds at a time. And that is a model that has only become popular and really accepted, I would say, over the last, you know, Three years or so, you know, with with the rise of Dollar Shave Club, and and Harry's, and and Everlane, and Birchbox, and NatureBox, and all these kind of subscription boxes. And so for us, you know, not only are we able to ride the coattails of those kind of bigger brands that have paved the way to to getting kind of our generation accustomed to receiving something you use all the time delivered straight to your door on on a schedule, but From a logistics perspective, it's really important for us to be able to reduce our costs and to to make kind of uh, shipping really easy for us.
0: Yeah. And so, of course, I mean, anybody will think about this and say, okay, you can literally just do a store and sell one time. But you're saying, okay, we're choosing the subscription based on the trend. But also, there is a a financial aspect, and you got a lot of possibilities once you build up a relationship with a client that is a subscriber versus one. you' just gonna buy one time and see it and you don't never know what else is going to happen with that client
1: that's totally true and, and and so one thing that we've found is that the longer that we can kind of create that relationship with our client the more passionate and devoted they get to to our story and our mission and so the, the, the less likely they are to to churn out or to, to cancel their subscription because when you get a chance to present yourself to a client every two weeks with a slightly different story or uh, a new anecdote about what their purchase is is empowering or enabling. That's a really powerful motivator to to kind of creating a community, which I think is, is important for any kind of subscription service. Is is giving people a reason to be a part of what you're doing. And that's that's something that we've been working really hard on doing.
0: So yeah. So that model and of course I love the tagline here on the website for you guys that are listening, you can go to VegaCoffee.com and the tagline right here, um premium coffee that changed life ship directly to your door. And you know, it's very simple, very specific. I love the branding. And you know, it's, it's basically taking the the whole notion of this also, the software as a service industry and applying it to a traditional industry. And so you're basically taking something that is working, that is being validated and applying it into a new market. Do you find did you find any roadblocks or any challenges? the beginning of the journey on applying that to
1: coffee? <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, we, you know, we were based, we are based in Nicaragua. And so working with the Nicaraguan government has been a huge challenge, but, uh, but not, not insurmountable, you know, but I, I think that coffee, so kind of two buckets of challenges. One is kind of the business model itself, which I think is what your, your question's getting at. And, and I think coffee is one of those commodities or, or products that, that you will be, if you're a coffee drinker, you buy a coffee once a week, you know, a bag of coffee once a week, or, you know, a a cup at Starbucks once, once a day. And so the subscription model works really well with coffee. I think people know how much coffee they drink. Usually people know, you know, if they need two bags a week, three bags a week, whatever it is before they even kind of get to our site. So it's not like, you know, I would think that for example, nature box or, uh, you know, one of the other snack boxes thing that might be a little bit another step because you, maybe you don't buy snacks uh, every week but, but coffee is one of those things that's just really natural for the subscription space I think
0: Yeah, I totally agree the next M is the money of course that's really tied to the business model so how do you guys make money and and of course we cover a little bit about that but I do want to expand on the impact aspect yeah. of it and when you guys are making money but also not supporting other people as well and other purposes
1: yeah so it's the it's the entire backbone of, of our company is, is what we're doing is essentially is in the typical coffee supply chain right farmers make a dollar or less per pound even of even a you know fair trade certified organic coffee because it tends to go through a number of middlemen and even within the farm level a number of cooperative levels or organizational structures before it gets to the individual farmer and that coffee is then shipped to the US roasted, packed, and then sold for $15 to $20 a pound. Some of the really high-end third-wave roasters are going up to $25, $28 a pound. And so we, we started looking at this, this supply chain and, and saying, what is going on here? Like, Where is all this money going? And it turns out that it's pretty simple. If, if you can enable farmers to roast and package the coffee themselves in-country, they're able to make four to five times more, and we can reduce costs for our customers because we don't have the overhead of operating in the US. We don't have We don't deal with all the middlemen, like we are completely middleman free coffee. So we're then then that's kind of another economic trend that's been growing. You know, you look at Everlane, which makes a ton of hay out of the transparency of their supply chain. And that's something we take really seriously too. But you know, with any of these kind of vertical integration plays, what you're doing is you're you're creating a better product, you're lowering costs for the customer. And hopefully, you know, I mean, and we certainly are, and I hope other companies are too, you're 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 leaving more value in the country of origin, where the raw product comes from. And that has a really transformative impact. So we're dealing mostly with small holding farmers in Nicaragua right now. These are farmers that you know make $500 to $1,000 a year exporting coffee, because they're exporting 500 to 1,000 pounds. If you can take a farmer making $500 a year and get them up to $2,000 a year, so 4x, just because they are able to come in and, you know, kind of, finish the processing of the coffee rather than selling a raw commodity to a bunch of middlemen that is that is like completely changing the potential for not only that farmer but for the community and so our our big kind of like why is we want to turn latin america from an extraction based economy where natural resources are just getting taken out of the country and then processed abroad to a participation based economy so farmers are participating in all the value add processes. So the value stays at origin. And so that, that you know that's what we've that's what we've been focused on. And that's what that's kind of the the reason for for why we exist.
0: That's phenomenal. Now that social entrepreneurship I know there's different models as well in the social entrepreneurship, but what was other than the trip and everything that we talk about it is there any other aspect on why you guys decided to do it, you know, that social aspect—is there any other, maybe your wife or your co-founder, that say, "Hey, we we need to do this"? Because you could have easily say, "Okay, we're gonna help, but hey, we're just gonna be the for-profit, uh, completely you know, traditional model instead of this whole approach."
1: Yeah, no, I mean you're you're spot on because you know the the other way of doing this exact same model would be to essentially have a have a you know, a sweatshop of coffee, right? And and do the same processing and origin. So we, we reduce our costs, but we don't, you know, pay well, or we don't treat our farmers well, or we don't try and turn them into coffee professionals. You know, we don't try and teach them anything about coffee. We just use their labor, pay the minimum wage and make a ton of money. For us, it's been about, you know, first of all, we think that this is where business is going in general. So outside of what we're doing, Consumers want transparency, they want an ethical product, they want something that does good for the earth and for, their, for, for, for people. So I think that there's compelling consumer demand kind of side reasons. From our side, you know, like I said, I've been in this community now for, for close to 12 years, and I have really good friends that are coffee farmers and people that I feel deeply connected to and, and deep empathy for. and so. For me, it was never like a real choice. It was just kind of what we had to do. It was a shared goal for, for us and for them to kind of create a more sustainable, durable supply chain. That's
0: amazing. Yeah, congrats on that, I man. I think it's it, it's always there. I mean, you, you can always pivot and change and make a decision, a business decision that is going to affect everything else. But once you decided, like you guys decided to pursue that path, I mean, that's, that's you know, honorable right there so let's go ahead and jump into the market who are sure. you guys um trying to to reach and what are, what are pretty much your your base client at the moment
1: yeah so we have a couple of different things going on right now we do we're kind of in a in a, a phase where we're looking for that kind of data about our individual customers we've had a lot of success with kind of you know early mid thirties city, you know, urban dwellers who, who are looking, who are, who are already subscribers, right. To, to things like uh, dollar shave club or Birchbox or something like that. And so they're familiar with the model. They have a little bit of income. And so they, and they they feel conscious about, or they're able to, to make conscious consumer driven decisions. And so I, I would say that that's kind of where, like where our sweet spot is as far as a customer, you know, p- people who want to be identified by what they buy and, and are trying to make a statement by what they buy. And then on the other hand, we have a, a pretty successful B2B line where we're targeting kind of smaller offices, coworking spaces, and places that you know we we kind of speak the same language. So in a co-working space that has a bunch of startups and entrepreneurs they they really kind of gravitate and understand our mission and our message to kind of disrupt big coffee, you know, and do something new and different and kind of disintermediate the supply chain. So we've had a lot of success targeting small offices that that are really kind of entrepreneurial as well as kind of on the individual side, like I said, people who who, who want who want to do to do right by what they buy. And I think that where we're coming from as a coffee company, it's 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 almost like the natural next step in coffee. I think you know you had kind of first wave initial coffee, you know Folgers, Chockful, whatever that company was called, Sanka, kind of you know, and then second wave, you know, you get a little bit more education about the coffee, maybe quality is a little bit more important. Pete's, Starbucks, um, then now you have the third wave roasters who are who are pra- placing a ton of emphasis an import on origin and where the coffee comes from and what are the flavor notes of the coffee and, and how quality is it? And I think that the more education those third wave roasters do and kind of the greater emphasis they put on origin, it really paves the way for, for the next thing in coffee, which is, which is what we think of as fourth wave coffee or what we're doing. So if origin is so important, the natural next question for a customer to ask is, well, what's going on at origin and are the farmers like, being treated well and, and you know how can I get coffee that's even more direct than than third wave roasters and we're, we're, we're kind of the right answer for that because because our farmers are the only ones that handle the beans the entire time the quality is incredible you know we're sourcing from the same exact cooperatives as some of the biggest names in coffee and so we feel really good about our product and about our story and about kind of where the market is is headed basically
0: yeah and I'm seeing here and in- You guys go to begacoffee.com you're going to see their their social media is pretty active and and it's that personal touch that connection with the locals and that relationship that you guys being down there are building that really accelerates that value of the brand and that mission on 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 the business itself but it's pretty amazing what i'm seeing here on instagram thanks yeah yeah this is beautiful i gotta close it otherwise i mean there's so much good stuff in here <laughs> um yeah we're we're, we're we're really blessed to kind of be
1: based at origin because you know we, we do have those like direct lines to two farmers to coffee country which is you know as, as you're familiar with like co- where coffee's grown is some of the most beautiful places in the world you know it's high elevation you know deeply lush and green and so yeah, we're, we're able to get some, some pretty good content out of it.
0: Beautiful. The next thing that we're going to be touching is the management. And that's that's regarding the team. And I know you say your wife is involved and then you guys have a co-founder. But anybody else, I'm and even maybe the, that relationship with the farmers as well, that's part of the management and managing those relationships. But also maybe talking about the relationship with your investors. And I know you, you mentioned that you are actually right now in California. You got a couple of meetings. So. Yep
1: yeah so our our team is uh is pretty pretty amazing um, so i you know like I said I have a decent amount of experience in country uh, and as an attorney I've been able to work through a bunch of the legal complexities of importing and exporting, which is you know a huge kind of barrier of entry to this kind of work just as far as navigating the complexities you know we're we're now certified importers exporters we've passed inspections by homeland security, everything like usda fda the whole the whole gamut my wife is also a former attorney, uh, Fulbright fellow who spent some time in Nicaragua before starting Vega. She's uh, pretty unbelievable because she, she's a certified Q grader, which is like a sommelier of coffee. So she has this incredible palate that is really rare among, among people. And to have a Q grader on your team at this stage is, is kind of completely unheard of. Um, and then our third co-founder, uh, Will DeLuca is has a ton of experience on kind of the tech SEO uh, marketing side of things, um, and so he's been a, just a huge asset as well. In country, you know, we have a really amazing team of farmers led by a woman named Nordia Acuna, who's just been like amazing. You know, it's it, one of the things that we've been the most surprised by is just. How much farmers want to do and how much they're capable of, so you know after a few trainings, now we have farmers managing our orders you know on shopify using google wow. docs like it it's they they, they like get it, they want to get it, they're ambitious like it's just it's just really cool, and then we recently brought on another guy named Julian Fellerman who is kind of helping manage the the nicaraguan center as we start to scale out to guatemala and mexico and beyond our investors are are totally incredible people who have kind of supported this dream since, since before we were able to even ship coffee and have been consistent and reliable and great mentors along the way um mostly in kind of the impact space so so they 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 are Dedicated to our mission as well as our business model, um, which has been amazing. Because I think social entrepreneurship can can oftentimes be like the hardest type of entrepreneurship because you're not just chasing a bottom line and you're not just chasing a mission statement. You 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 have to chase both at the same time, and that can be really challenging. I think so. It's been it's been invaluable to have the kind of investors we have.
0: Yeah. That's um. Even though we only have five M's, I I'll add the the mission yeah. M already to this. Yeah, <laughs> totally. that's, that's wonderful. And then the last one will be mentorship. So you say you traveled to a couple conference, and of course we met at the uh, Louisiana Startup Prize in Shreveport. Yeah. So why why is that happening? Why um are you involved in all of this uh, ecosystem?
1: Yeah. So that was another. That was uh, a product of one of our. Of one of our investors, a woman named Kristen Koch, who connected us with uh, a really fantastic guy named Mark Newberg, who is a part of the Louisiana Startup Prize ecosystem and, and got us into the, the 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 competition. I think that, you know, among our our, our greatest mentors are you know uh, some of our investors, so John Rubini, Eric McCallum, John Aliff, Andy Lower, uh, the Linked Foundation, and and what's amazing about their work is that they they're just really dedicated to to kind of fostering growth. Both in terms of our business, but also making sure that we stay really connected to our mission and not losing sight of why we started Vega initially. And so, I, I just think that, that that cannot be overstated enough because I think that you know when you get involved with an investor, that's obviously a really long-term relationship. You know, it's it's until the end of the company probably. And so, if you get involved with the wrong investor, one who wants to emphasize something over something else, that you know, if the if the incentives aren't aligned, if the missions aren't aligned, it can be a real problem. And so we just feel incredibly grateful and blessed to to kind of have the kind of support network that, that, that we've been able to foster. Yeah, I
0: know one of the biggest uh, challenges as well when working with different partners and different co-founders is being able to find somebody that can make decisions. Because of course, everybody, I mean, ideally, everybody will have an opinion. Yeah, And sometimes they're just not the same opinion so how do you deal with that and how you ended up handling you say either this person is going to make these decisions or how do you <laughs> yeah no i mean that's definitely
1: something that that we have have kind of gone through some growing pains with you know we we have three co-founders who you know the three of us are essentially equals and so we you know there's definitely some some you know tugging and and, and back and forth we, we 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 really try to avoid Settling things based on a vote, you know, we, we we try and come to a consensus about whatever is best for the company, and if that means bringing in an investor and asking him what he thinks we should do, and then getting somebody else's advice, like that's that's something that that the decision-making process, especially with it's not like a single co a single founder or a single strong voice, can be really complicated. But I think that the the complexity ends up being better for the business because you arrive at a decision where. Where you try not to, where you try to make pretty much everybody happy, and I think that you know we're all on the same team. We're all looking for the same same goal and objective, and sometimes we differ on the way to get there. But if you can kind of present a case and and kind of get them on your side, then I think I think you're better for it
0: in a lot of ways. But but it's definitely something that that's tough yeah. you know, when you're working on a team. Totally, totally. So we pretty much cover all the five M's that we we do handle here in the show, but I wanted to get more technical before we we finish. Sure. More technical, specifically in the metrics that you guys handle when we met. We get a a brief conversation about you know lifetime value and then the yeah. current metrics that software companies will usually do. You guys are looking at that, but if if you can share with the audience some of those uh, metrics that you are consciously looking and, and why is that important for? You know you guys on a daily basis in operations, but also for uh, financial and raising money and marketing and all of that yeah one hundred percent I think that
1: that has come up recently for us too, because you know we've been really focused on on lifetime value customer cost per acquisition and and kind of churn rate, you know kind of the the, the kind of and, and you know net promoter score like the the, the kind of mainstays of e commerce metrics right like that's something that we've been laser focused on because of our backgrounds, but our investors are more in tune to kind of like our cash flow and our burn rate and kind of our revenue and our sales increase and and you know kind of you know the way that we kind of frame it is new school versus old school, but they're both incredibly vital and important to the company, right? And so you can't have you can't just focus on on spending a bunch of money and getting customers and how much it costs and driving down that cost. If you if you because if you lose sight of your the fundamentals, you know, the sales and you know how much money is coming in, how much money is going out, pretty soon you won't have a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know that is something that we have been balancing a lot and something that we're kind of unveiling later uh, this quarter is uh, a dashboard you know which 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 has not only old school, if you want to put it that way, metrics, but new school metrics, you know, the e-commerce metrics, as well as and this is kind of where it gets a little bit complicated on the social entrepreneur side, as well as our social impact metrics. So how many farmers are we involving? How much are farmers making more than they used to make? What, you know, how much money is going towards paying for organic certification or training or things that aren't maybe directly profitable to the business, but advance our long-term mission. And, and so that that's something that I think is going to help us consolidate and get everybody on the same page, because, because we need to be focused on all of those and that's why it's so i mean it's it's hard to be an entrepreneur right like Mark Newberg, uh, the guy that I was talking about before said entrepreneurship is is it's something like it is hard you can tell by how difficult it is to spell it right uh, it's like it, it it is a very complicated topic and theme and and daily job. One thing that's been really helpful is we brought on a creative agency called eudaimonia who has been really helpful in getting kind of our Branding in line, our story in line, and and helping advance kind of our communications mission as we kind of start tracking kind of the nuts and bolts of our of our metrics. So,
0: are they based uh, in California as well? Yeah, they're in
1: California, and they're they're like fantastic. Cannot you know if any of your listeners are looking for somebody to work with, they're amazing. So, yeah,
0: I'll post a link uh, here in the show notes as well. No, and and right. dashboards, I think that's critical. I do have, I mean, I'm a, I'm a geek when it comes to tools and stuff, but you mm-hmm. mentioned Google Docs. I mean, you mentioned, uh, what are some of the other uh, tools that you guys have I mean, you Shopify, but what else?
1: Yeah. So, you know, th- those are our main ones. You know, we, we, we use Shippo, um, for kind of track our shipping and our postage costs. Um, and then we, we actually just, um, developed some, like some so- software with an agency called Rocket Code that kind of, helps us integrate all of the various complexities of our subscription model because, you know, customers change from a medium roast to a dark roast from ground to whole bean. And if, and if that happens, like as we're roasting or right before we roast, like that can be missed if we're relying on human processes. So, so what we've, what we've developed is a little bit proprietary software to kind of streamline the order processing and the communication of those orders to our farmers directly. And so that, that, that's kind of something we've we've been working on recently.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. I think like I say, guys, it's 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 definitely fascinating checking out their website. And um, I mean, the story they got at the about section and, and they cover pretty much everything from the e-commerce aspect, but also the social and branding aspect as well. Robert, anything else that you would like to share with entrepreneurs, especially some of those that are interested in social entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say,
1: you know, it's social entrepreneurship. There's a conference coming up in San Francisco in a couple of weeks called SOCAP. That is the place to kind of meet people, to network, to get involved. Even if you're just in an idea stage, I think it's totally worth it to go to this this conference. It's in San Francisco in two weeks. And it's it's where we've done a ton of business and kind of it helped us go from being a small company to, to kind of a, a real company. Accelerators, I think, are are hugely important. We we went through the Agora Partnerships Accelerator, which was really pivotal in our kind of growth. and And yeah, I mean, that would be that would be my advice. You know, I, I I think that also something that helped us get started. Not to kind of drag this on too long, but you know, it's scary to to leave whatever you're doing and start a, start a company. And so, if you say I'm going to change my life, I'm leaving this, and I'm going to do this full time, like that can be a really hard jump to make. And so, what we did is we said, let's give it a year. Let's just see what we can do for a year. And you know, eight months, ten months in, we'll reevaluate if we want to come back, if we want to you know give it up, or or if we think we have some legs. And that really helped to say, okay we're not like leaving the modern world for forever. It's going to be a one year sabbatical where we're going to try this thing out. And I think that that helped us get going. Finally, we're launching a new website on September 6th. So definitely check that out. And yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty much it.
0: Wonderful. What's the best way to get in touch
1: with you? Rob at vegacoffee.com is probably the the easiest. Or if you just go onto our website and and click the generic, you know, hello at Vega that'll, that'll come to me too.
0: Sounds great. Robert, I appreciate it and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks everybody and muchas gracias and I will see you at the next episode of Exponential Growth. Thank you guys.